0: You may turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 57. If I got right in the bulletin and you're using a Pew Bible, you will find that on page 617. Since I don't have a video projector and there's really I didn't even check this week. I've got one on order. They said it'd be 2 or 3 weeks it should come in and then they would have to ship it. I'm skeptical. But I figure I wouldn't even try checking after one week. I don't want to be a nuisance. Uh, But I'll probably check the end of this week just to see if they have an update. Uh, If we don't get this video projector, then we'll have to reconfigure our setup and get a new screen, which I think would make Darwin happy anyway, because we could get one that's motorized and we wouldn't have to use the... But at any rate. Uh, Isaiah chapter 57. Since I don't have a PowerPoint, I'm reduced to... ...a little whiteboard. I'm going to start off with some key themes in Isaiah. These things keep getting repeated over and over again. And I want you to see how they get repeated in the text we're going to look at this morning... ...which uh, is begins in verse 14 of chapter 57 and goes through the end of the chapter. So the themes in Isaiah and, and especially what I'm most familiar with at this point is the end of Isaiah. So we're, we're doing chapters 40 to 66... The last 27 chapters. One of those themes is the theme of sin. And it's not just sin, which is bad enough disobedience against God, rebellion against God. In particular, in Isaiah, what is so appalling is the sin of God's people, it's the sin of Israel, it's the sin of Jerusalem. It's the sin of people that he, have, he has called out to be separate and distinct to him and to be a witness to the nations. So it's his own people's sin. The second theme in Isaiah is the theme of judgment because sin requires judgment. And so one of the things that the prophet does is he hammers this theme of judgment. Because of your sin, God's judgment is coming. Second theme. The third theme is the theme of grace. The prophets announced two things typical in any prophet in the Old Testament. Uh, Any of the written prophets in particular. They announced God's coming judgment. And they also announced God's coming grace. God's coming salvation. God's coming restoration. So you've got sin, judgment, grace. You've also, the fourth theme would be a theme of Encouragement, because as Joe mentioned in Sunday school, there's always God's remnant according to grace. So even though the nation as a whole are walking in paths of disobedience and rebellion and idolatry, there are always those who've been faithful to God by his grace. There are always those who do recognize the, uh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they want to serve him and follow him and, and be embraced by his grace and forgiveness. And so Isaiah also has a theme of encouragement for those. In light of all this sin, in light of the judgment that's coming, there's still this encouragement to those that, that haven't bowed to the their knee to Baal, to the idols. And then the last theme, which is probably... Uh, it's, it's not as emphasized as these first four, but it would be a theme of, I'm going to call it Jerusalem. This is uh, the idea of restoration of a new Jerusalem because what I realized, something I shared, probably one of the last PowerPoints I was able to do with the video projector, is in Isaiah as is it goes through these cycles which include these things, a cycle ends with this New Jerusalem, with this restoration. It's not just the old Jerusalem, but it's the old Jerusalem restored, made new. It's the way the entire Bible ends in Revelation with a a heavenly Jerusalem coming down to earth. God's perfect plan brought to completion and fulfillment. So you've got these five themes in Isaiah over and over and over again. Last week, we had a very dark portion of scripture that was uh, we did chapter 56, verse 9. ...through the first 13 verses of chapter 57. And things were very dark. And in particular, Jerusalem is in the spotlight. And with Jerusalem in the spotlight, if if I were to summarize what we did last week... ...it starts off with Jerusalem's leaders. And they are blind watchmen. These are those in charge of the nation. These are those in charge of of God's heritage, God's chosen people. And the leaders are blind, and they are like lazy, good-for-nothing dogs. And they are like shepherds who have no understanding. That's how they're characterized. Blind, worthless, misunderstanding leaders in Jerusalem. And then chapter 57 opens with the righteous perishing. And nobody cares. Nobody takes it to heart. Nobody understands. And that sounds like a very bad thing in chapter 57, that the righteous are perishing. But upon closer inspection, what you find out is, it's kind of a mercy that the righteous are perishing. Because the righteous are perishing because God is sparing them from the judgment that is coming because of the sin. So they are spared the atrocities that they would otherwise see. And so they are perishing. And nobody takes it to heart, meaning those who are sinning, the wicked, those in rebellion, the leaders, they don't understand that while the righteous are perishing, it means God's judgment is that much closer to falling on them. Because God's removing his own people first. And then after these righteous perishing, beginning in verse 3... The Lord then calls into account the wicked. So verse 3 of chapter 57 opens up. But you, or kind of thinking with the idea of, but as for you, as for those who are not righteous, as for you, draw near sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. And then the rest of the passage centers around two key questions. The two key questions are in verse 4, whom are you mocking? These wicked who are steeped in their sin and idolatry. Whom exactly are you mocking? Do you think you're mocking the righteous? Are you mocking me? We talked about that last week. God will not be mocked. A man, a sinner reaps what he sows. God is not mocked. What happens, what I what uh, the Lord tells these that he's said, draw near and pay attention. The only ones you're mocking are yourselves. This is all coming back on you. The second key question was in verse 11. Whom did you dread in fear so that you lied and did not remember me, did not lay it to heart? What has kept you from walking in obedience to me, of humbling yourself before me? Who are you more concerned about than me? This is a theme often repeated in scripture. Jesus said, don't fear him who can destroy the body, but fear him who can cast both body and soul in hell, which is a holy God. Uh, If I would have had more time than what I had last week, and I took an ample amount of time last week, uh, for that second question, I would have directed you to a terrific example of a story in the Old Testament, it's King Saul. And you'll remember King Saul was commissioned, charged by God through the prophet Samuel to destroy the Amalekites because of their sin and their wickedness and their idolatry. And Saul didn't fully carry out the job. He spared some. He spared some of the best of the best. And Samuel comes and confronts him about his disobedience. And Saul Protests And no, I, ha- I have fully obeyed the Lord. Why? I've only kept the best as a, as a way to honor the Lord. And you'll remember Samuel had that famous line, to obey is better than sacrifice. God isn't interested in you sparing the best of the oxen or the best of the cattle or the best of the sheep to sacrifice. God would have preferred that you simply obey him instead of think you can come up with a better plan. And then Saul says, finally, Saul says to Samuel, I have sinned. For I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. In Isaiah, the question is asked, whom you feared that you would not obey me? I have feared the people, is what King Saul said. Much of our, I'm reading a book right now. I think I can highly recommend it. I haven't I'm only I'm halfway through it so I'm not in, until I've completely finished it I always want to have a little reservation but it's called evangelism is exiles and it's written for such a time as this I'm actually curious when it was written because things have gotten worse in our culture with the divisiveness and the language and evangelism is exiles it's based, it's out of 1st Peter and the point is this Christians need to learn that we're exiles in a, in a foreign land. And yet we somehow need to communicate, the kind of like Hannah's talking about, the gospel, the love of Christ, when we are exiles in our own country. And it's, it's a very convicting book. So I don't recommend it on that score unless you like being convicted. But part of what it asks me is the reader, it says, Who am I fearing that's keeping me from living out the gospel? And the truth be told, a lot of times what I fear is what other people think. I want their respect. I want them to think well of me. And I learned to couch it in such nice terms to get myself off the hook. But the book doesn't make it so easy. It's a fascinating little read. It's only about 150 or 60 pages. I'm about halfway through. Uh, So maybe more on that later. So King Saul was uh, guilty... of of fearing the people more than he was fearing God. And so judgment is pronounced in verse 12 of chapter 57. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them all off. A breath will take them away. But the last word isn't a word of judgment. The last word is a word of encouragement. The end of verse 13 reads... But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. There you have a word of encouragement and a promise of this restored Jerusalem, my holy mountain. That's, that's the last word of what we the section we looked at last week. Now we pick up with verse 14 through the end of the chapter, 21. I think there are eight verses there. And what I want you to answer, and I'm going to let you shout it out, I'm going to read each one of those verses a couple times. Towards the end, I'll read two verses together, because it's the middle of a sentence. And I want you to tell me, is that verse a verse highlighting sin, judgment, grace, encouragement, or the new Jerusalem? Um, I'll take one off the board. I'm going to tell you none of those verses, none of the rest of the chapter is emphasizing the New Jerusalem. But we've got sin, judgment, grace, and encouragement in the rest of chapter 57. And this is a... I found this to be a very difficult passage of Scripture uh, in light of where we were last week and what does the Lord through Isaiah mean to develop. Does he mean to refocus on sin and judgment does he mean to point our direction to grace and encouragement so let's start with verse 14 it shall be said build up build up prepare the way remove every obstruction from my people's way what is that what category encouragement Encouragement? could be encouragement that's one word what's the other word Grace, it's grace and encouragement in verse 14. Build up, build up, prepare the way. Remove every obstruction from my people's way. Grace and encouragement in verse 14. 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly. And to revive the heart of the contrite. What theme? Encouragement. encouragement. In great encouragement in verse 15. Verse 16. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I had made. What theme in verse 16? Grace. grace? It is grace. What's implied in verse 16? What's implied is both sin and judgment, but the, the resounding theme, or really what's at the forefront, is this grace in verse 16, this encouragement in verse 16. So there's implied sin and judgment, but grace and encouragement is still in the forefront. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. What theme? Judgment and sin. Now it's very clear in verse 17, we've got got themes of judgment and sin because of the iniquity. And he went backsliding in the way of his own heart. He went on backsliding, but the Lord judged him in verse 17. Verse 18 and 19. I've seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. What theme? Grace. I mean, grace, again, is at the theme in verses 18 and 19 and encouragement in verses 18 and 19. And then the chapter ends. But the wicked are like the tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. The theme? Judgment. Sin and judgment, again. So you've got this crazy mixture of of sin, judgment, grace, and encouragement in these verses. and, And somehow, this is communicating a message that's a little bit obscure. It's a little bit hard to discern. And it partly needs the light of where we've already been in Isaiah to understand exactly what's transpiring and why. So let me break it down for you. Let's start with just verse 14. Verse 14 says, It shall be said, Build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. Does that sound familiar, that verse, verse 14? Does that sound familiar to you? If you have a cross-referenced Bible... Uh, you clearly have cross-references for verse 14, and it may sound familiar, especially if you've been with our series from the beginning of Isaiah. Turn back to chapter 40. This is where we started, this second section of Isaiah. Chapter 40, and those first five verses, they read like this. And I want, I want, to, I want us to look at the similarity with chapter 40, as well as what is different, what is dissimilar with chapter 40. So chapter 40 starts off this way. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended and her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What is similar or what is identical in those first five verses with what we read in chapter 57 and verse 14? What is similar? What What's the same? How are they, what do they share in common? A road. a road, a road. So a road is in common. What about that road? It's a level road. It's a level road, it's a level road because... Obstacles are being removed. Uh, The way is being made straight, smooth, easy. In both cases, this road is being, it's very accessible. What's different? What is the key difference between preparing that road in chapter 40 and preparing that road in chapter 57? The biggest difference about preparing this road I can ask a follow-up question that should make it easier if you need the hint. Who is the road prepared for in chapter 40? For God, for Christ, for Messiah, for Jesus. All the Gospels talk about, they quote essentially that chapter. Chapter 40, John the Baptist is the one preparing the road for the Messiah to come. He's the one that he's the fulfillment of chapter forty. The road is being made smooth. People are being prepared for, it, but it's the Messiah who's coming. Messiah is coming on that road. Who's the road prepared for in chapter fifty-seven? His people. It's not the Messiah in chapter fifty-seven. It's the Messiah's people in chapter fifty-seven. Before the road can ever be prepared for his people, first the road has to be prepared for Messiah. Messiah have to, has to come before the people can, can travel on this road and come before God. Before people can stand before a holy God, Christ has to come. The Savior has to come. The Redeemer has to come. First Messiah... And then the people can come and travel and, and stand before a holy God. Do you get the order? That's uh, pretty clear. So, how is the way prepared? It says in verse uh, chapter 57 and verse 14, Remove every obstruction from my people's way. What is obstructing Israel from coming to the Lord? What is obstructing them? Let's, the leaders, that's the immediate context. If you go back to what we just came out of, what's obstructing them is you've got blind watchmen. You've got lazy dog shepherds or uh, prophets. You've got shepherds without understanding. All of Jerusalem's leaders have failed. They are obstructing the true and living God. That's got to be taken care of. Another obstruction are the nations around them who are oppressing them. They are obstructions to Israel worshiping God in spirit and in truth. What we will also find out in this text is that an obstruction is the sin of their own heart. It's not just the leaders. It's not just the nations around them. Another obstruction that needs needs dealt with is my sin, if I'm an Israelite at that time. It's the individual's sin is an obstruction to traveling this road before a holy God. Um, There's one more occurrence, which I think is worth taking a peek at. Because there's three times in Isaiah where a road is prepared uh, so that people can travel. The first time is so that Messiah can come to Israel... The second time is so that Israel can come to God. Now look at the third time. Go to Isaiah chapter 62. Isaiah chapter 62. Let's look at this road and how it compares or what theme it develops that we haven't seen to this point. Isaiah chapter 62. So it's near the end of Isaiah. And I'm going to pick up at verse 6. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 62, verse 6. Reads this way. On your walls, O Jerusalem, I've set watchmen. Well, we've seen watchmen before. All the day and all the night they, they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. The Lord has sworn by his right hand and by his mighty arm. I will not again give your grain to be food for your enemies. And foreigners shall not drink your wine for which you have labored. But those who garner it shall eat it and praise the Lord. And those who gather it shall drink it in the courts of my sanctuary. Go through. Go through the gates. Prepare the way for the people. Build up. Build up the highway. Clear it of stones. Lift up a signal over the people's. Behold, the Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your salvation comes. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. And they shall be called the holy people, the redeemed of the Lord. And you shall be called sought out, a city not forsaken. So the first time the road is prepared so Messiah can come to Israel. The second time, the road is prepared so that Israel can come to God. What happens the third time? Who benefits from this road? Who? The Israelite and the nations. To the Jew first, and also to the Gentile. Our gospel is the power of God into salvation. To the Jew first... And also to the Gentile. The third time, the road is prepared so that all the nations can come before God Almighty. First Messiah comes to Israel. Then Israel comes to God. And now all the nations are traveling this road to worship the true and the living God. This is, this is like one of the themes of all of scripture. This is a fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. God tells Abraham, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. All the nations. That's what's happening in chapter 62. All the nations of the earth are benefiting from what God has done in Messiah who came to us. It's a fulfillment. I find that fascinating. All right, let's go back to 57. Go back to 57. We've got a verse of encouragement in verse 15. The encouragement reads, for, and that word for It should be in your Bibles. Uh, I think the NIV doesn't always translate those transitional words. So if it's not there, it should be. Because the word for is telling you a reason why what just happened. So what just happened in verse 14 is that obstacles are being removed so that my people can come before me. For, here's the reason why. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy... I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. How is it that Israel can come before a holy God? Well, here's the reason why. Because for I also dwell with the contrite and the lowly spirit. The word contrite, I think we generally associate with repentance. That's not entirely bad. But the word most literally, most closely, it would be translated crushed. God dwells with the crushed. And what we found in Isaiah is we've got the people of Israel crushed by their leaders. You've got the people of Israel crushed by. By the nation surrounding them. Let me give you two examples of how the exact same word is used in Isaiah. Go to uh, Isaiah chapter 3. Go way back to the beginning of Isaiah. This is the first time the word is used in Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 3. And maybe for context, I'll start at verse 13. Isaiah 3, verse 13. The Lord has taken his place to contend... He stands to judge peoples. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people? By grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of God of hosts. Who has crushed his people? It's the leaders in verse 14. The elders and the princes of his people. You've crushed my people. But guess what? God is with those who are crushed. He's he's with those who have been crushed by Israel's leaders. It's the same word that is used in chapter 53. So go to 53. This is the most famous chapter in all of Isaiah. The word is used twice. Speaking of the Messiah, this is speaking of Jesus' death on a cross, why he died, the implications of him giving himself that others would have life, Chapter 53, verse 5. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. Go down to verse 10. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. You've got the, you've got the word crushed used of Jesus, of the Messiah, twice in chapter 53. So, one of the obstacles are Israel's leaders. You've got the people being crushed, but God says, there's coming a day. I'm making you this promise. You are going to come before me. I'm going to make the way clear. I'm going to remove the obstacles. And the crushed people are going to travel this road. Are going to travel this road. That's a good word. That's a word of encouragement. He's going to revive them. He uses the word revive twice in verse 15. But the, the, another obstacle, which I've hinted at and alluded to to this point, is it's not just the people, and it's not just the nations. Another obstacle is their own sin, their own rebellion against God. So now I need you to turn to a different passage. It's uh, Psalm chapter 38. The same word crushed is used there, and it's worth looking at. So go back in your Bible the biggest book in all of the Bible, and Psalm 38 in particular. The entire psalm is fascinating, but I just want to read, I'll just read the first eight verses to give you some context. Psalm chapter 38, and then we're going to go to Isaiah chapter 6 to develop this idea of crushed, what is crushed. Psalm chapter 38, verse 1. It's a psalm attributed to David, though David doesn't actually put his name on the psalm. Uh, Tradition has always been David wrote it. I think there's some good reason for that, but it's not an ironclad argument. Psalm 38 reads, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, remember that theme, because that's coming up in Isaiah. The Lord disciplined those who sinned. So he start. the psalmist says, O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. For your arrows have sunk into me, and your hand has come down on me. There is no soundness in my flesh because of your indignation. There is no health in my bones because of my sin. For my iniquities have gone over my head. Like a heavy burden, they are too heavy for me. My wounds stink and fester because of my foolishness. I am utterly bowed down and prostrate. All the day I go about mourning, for my sides are filled with burning, and there's no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and crushed. I groan because of the tumult of my heart. The psalmist is crying out to God and saying, God, I know I'm a sinner. I'm a miserable sinner, and I'm crushed before you. And he's crying out to God to provide some relief to somehow turn away from his righteous anger toward him as a sinner in Psalm chapter 38. Now to go to Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6. This is another pretty well-known passage in Isaiah. If you're familiar with Isaiah at all, Isaiah would agree or... um, He expresses the same sentiment as the psalmist in chapter 38, where he has a vision of the Lord. It goes like this. This is Isaiah's call to ministry. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah doesn't say in that moment, woe is me, I dwell among a sinful, idolatrous people. He says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. I recognize I'm a sinner before this holy God. And it's not just me, it's the entire nation. We're all sinners before this holy God. We've got a big problem here. A big problem of sin, which requires judgment. So Isaiah himself recognizes, I'm a sinner. I stand in, before God in judgment. Now go back to chapter 57. Go back to chapter 57. God explains verse 15. In verse 15, let me refresh your memory, where the Lord said, uh, I dwell in a high and holy place also with him who is crushed and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the crushed. For, verse 16, here's the reason why I can make that promise in 15, for I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit of man would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I have made. Here's why the high and holy Lord, a perfectly righteous God, here's the reason why he can dwell not in a high and holy place exclusively, but the reason why a high and holy God can also dwell with him who is crushed and lowly is because... I'm not going to always contend with man. I'm not always going to be angry. And the word contend is a legal kind of a word. It's what you've seen all the way through Isaiah. I could give you lots of examples where he calls Israel into account. I mean, you're going to stand before me and you're going to give an account. And your sin is apparent. And God's judgment is apparent. And God's righteousness and holiness is apparent. All those things are plain to see but he makes this wonderful promise in verse 15 because he's not always going to, be, he's not always going to charge Israel with sins. He's not always going to uh, be removed from them by his own holiness and by Israel's own rebellion and idolatry. So what in the world happens that that no longer is the case? How is it that God can say, I'm not always going to be angry. I'm not always going to contend with you. How is it that God can finally just... It seems like he, God's throwing up his hands and saying, all right, have it your way. Uh, I'm going to let you stand before me. Uh, I'm going to make the way plain and clear. I'm not going to contend with you anymore when when Israel's got a sin problem. How does that happen? Well, verse 17, the Lord seems to... um He seems to implicate himself and make the problem bigger than than what it started off being in 16. Because verse 17 says, because here's why he's not always going to be angry. Here's why he's not always going to contend with them. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. But he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. God says on one hand, he's saying, look, I've I've disciplined them, I struck them, I hid my face from them, but it didn't solve the problem. They they just continued in verse 16, they went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. It didn't stop them from sinning one bit. They were just as much given to idolatry as before. No matter how God judges them, whatever nation he uses, whatever plague he sends, however he strikes them down, it doesn't solve the sin problem. You've still got the sin problem in verse 17. By the way, when it says uh, the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. That's uh, one commentator described that as self-interest at the expense of others. It's unjust gain. It's not just self-interest, but it's unjust in that I don't really care who else this may hurt. I just know it's good for me. It's kind of like what Paul says in, uh, to Timothy, that the love of sin is the root of all kinds of evil. This love, this covetousness, this desire for self-interest creates all kinds of problems in family, and society, and culture, and nations. So the Lord says, I struck him. I hid my face, I was angry, it didn't stop anything. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. He's talking about those who are crushed. He's not talking about the wicked who who will never cry out to God and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's talking about God's people who are just as much sinners as anybody else. I'm not talking to a bunch of holy people. In their own right. I'm talking to a sinner talking to sinners. We're crushed. And God says, I could discipline you from sun up to sun down. It wouldn't get sin out of your life. It wouldn't keep you from pursuing your own way. Verse 18 and 19. The Lord says, I'm fully aware of this problem. I have seen his ways. I know this is a problem. I know I can't beat the devil out of him. I've seen his ways, but... I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace, to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Salvation took place in verses 18 and 19. And it's not real clear. It's not real clear. We know we've got a sin problem. Verse 18, the Lord says, but I will heal him. I will heal him. On what basis does the Lord heal him? On what basis is the Lord's anger squelled, turned away? It's on the basis of Isaiah chapter 53. It's on the basis of the obedient servant who becomes a substitute for Israel and does what Israel cannot. It's on the basis of 53 that the Lord makes that grand promise in verses 18 and 19. I will heal him. I will uh, comfort him. Restore him. Creating the fruit of his lips. That word create is the same word that's used beginning in Genesis. In the beginning. God created what was out there. I will create the fruit of his lips. I will heal him. What fruit of the lips is God creating? What fruit of the lips is God creating? If I take scripture as a whole, it's the... It's the It's the fruit, it's the lips repenting, it's the lips trusting, believing, it's the lips then praising. Ephesians chapter 2 says salvation is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. And that God's gift of salvation includes a gift of faith. According to Paul, uh, writing to Timothy, uh, the prayer is that God would grant repentance, the difference in verses 18 and 19 between, an, between a person who will remain stuck in their sin is that, and, and the person at the end of the chapter where there is no peace for the wicked, what happens is God creates fruit where there's the fruit of repentance and the fruit of belief, the fruit of trust, the fruit of, fruit of crying out to God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I turn away from my own righteousness and I'm wholly dependent on you. God creates this wonderful gift of salvation in 18 and 19. And then finally in verses 20 and 21, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Um, it's very interesting since we ended in Sunday school with the poetic imagery of the, of the Psalms, how it uses metaphor, and how a picture of, of, of creation, of nations and of individuals being in rebellion against God is a picture of a raging sea. And for the wicked, for those that never humble themselves before God, who never confess their crushed condition before God so that God would be near to those brokenhearted, for those individuals, they will never experience peace. Kind of what Augustine wrote in his confessions. You know, you've created us for yourself. And there will never be peace. We will never find rest until we find our rest in you. For those that are not willing to come before God through Christ, they will never experience peace, fulfillment. They will never experience meaning to life. It will always be held off from them. Because it's only found in Christ. There's no peace for the wicked. Um, And maybe to end, right before I open it up for comments and questions, there's an obscure little verse that makes all the sense in the world when you understand how the image of Scripture is that sin sin and sinners who are in rebellion against God are pictured as a raging sea. How that image is all the way through Scripture. Like in Daniel, when the four beasts come out of the sea, they come out of the sea, they will be nations who rule over Jerusalem. The, uh, the Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, Alexander the Great, the Grecian Empire, and the Roman Empire are all beasts that come out of the sea. Uh, most of the time, or oftentimes, not mo- oftentimes in Scripture, when God pronounces judgment upon Israel, it's likened to that which comes out of the sea, because Israel's greatest threats came across the Mediterranean Sea. They ca- came across the Mediterranean Sea. Now in Revelation 21, it's very interesting. It says this. Chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And the sea was no more. That's not just some random thought about, so there's no water in the new heaven and the new earth? Like that's, The point is not to communicate... Whether there's a body of water called the sea, the point is there's no more threat to God's people in this new heaven and new earth. There's no more sea. There's no more fearing you will be caught up in the tumultuous waves that will, that will drown you. There's no more sea. All threat is gone. Only peace and security in this new heaven and this new earth. The imagery is vivid, intentional, and purposeful. What are your comments and questions? Carrie. I have seen his ways. Uh, I think that his, I think that's going back to those that are uh, crushed. I think it's going all the way back to, I dwell in, back in verse 15, I dwell in a high and holy place also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, a crushed and lowly spirit. I think, I think those with a crushed and lowly spirit, I've seen his ways. You're crushed and lowly. But there's nothing you can do to solve the problem. And I can't beat it out of you. But I will heal you. Which seems like a terrible enigma. Like how in the world, how can you heal me and not beat the sin out of me? And the answer is Isaiah 53. I will provide a substitute. And I will heal you based upon what he does. By his stripes, we are healed of our sin, of our propensity to sin. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, No, those are the the unrepentant sinners. Those are those, uh, in a sense, they're crushed too, but they're not categorized as the crushed because they're still proud, idolatrous, adulterous. They're still stuck in their sin. They have no interest in humbling themselves before God Almighty. So those are the unrepentant sinners. Everybody's got a sin problem, but God's solution is only of benefit to those who are crushed who are crying out god be merciful to me a sinner somebody else Hannah. in my mind the difference between crushed it, you know be the greatest hope you know that you could imagine it's the song we sang 405 not in me my only hope of righteousness is not in me but only you and the emotions are so vivid it's, it's strong yeah the tax collector in the temple would not even so much as look up his eyes to heaven but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. It's not somebody who says, you know, between what I contribute to the cause and what God God can fill in the blanks, you know, I'm a pretty good person. I, I, I gather with the church on Sunday. I contribute maybe to the offering. Maybe I serve in some capacity. Whatever the case may be, I do all these nice things. And so it keeps that person from ever saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. There's... I mean that whole song we sang there's nothing that I do no no song I sing no no act I do all of that is is as filthy rags before a holy god That's exactly right Joe So in Isaiah to... Well it's benefiting the nations as well the nations are drawn in with in uh, verse 7 and give him no rest until he so speaking of the messiah Will give the Messiah will not be at rest until He, the Messiah, establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. So the earth is entering into that praise, and then also in, uh, uh, in verse uh, 10, where it talks about prepare the way for the people, build up, build up the highway, clear it of stones, lift up a signal over the peoples. The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth. Say to the you know so it's it's all of the earth entering into what God has done for Israel, but all of them are entering into this this common uh, act of grace and restoration uh, that God has given to his people, and they and they also in you all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Um, I think it fits with other prophets it's less clear there, but I think it expands it beyond just Israel in fact, actually. That's actually a point I didn't bring up and I probably should have. When it says in, uh, in verse 19, when it says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Who are the far and who are the near? Peace, peace to the far and to the near. Well, I think initially it's the near are those that have returned to Jerusalem. The far, in the immediate context, includes the Jews who haven't returned to Jerusalem. So all the Jews, there's going to be this restoration to Jerusalem, to their Lord Messiah. But Paul takes that phrase in Ephesians chapter 2, and he applies it to the, the near are the Jews, and the far are the Gentiles. And now the Gentiles who were far are brought near. So Paul takes that phrase, that same terminology, and he applies it to Gentiles also are embraced by God's salvation. And that's, so that's Isaiah and Paul together. Anybody else? Which I'm kind of glad I got a chance to say that because I met two earlier. Let's stand and be dismissed in prayer.